The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay. <laughs> How is everyone? Are you okay? Are you cold? Some of you look a bit cold. <laughs> Beanies and blankets and things. Uh, so, uh, okay. Going all right, everyone? Yeah? Okay, marvelous. So let's uh, do the uh, questions uh, for tonight. Uh, and uh, there's not that many, so we'll see what happens as we go through this. Uh, so, uh, okay. Dear Ajahn, you mentioned uh, rebirth uh, in the morning. Are there any monks who can look into their past lives? Uh, is it possible for lay people to recall past lives? Uh, what are your views on past life regressions? Uh, many thanks. Are there monks who can look into their past lives? The answer is uh, uh, yes. Um, it is not very common, yeah, because one of the things, even if your meditation is very powerful, it doesn't mean that you automatically can recall your past lives. Uh, in fact, uh, the majority, even if the majority of, of people who have good meditation cannot recall their past lives. Uh, so it's actually quite rare. Uh, um, and there's different ways of recalling past lives. Yeah, There's one way is, is like when you have a flash of the past, you kind of see a picture or something, uh, and it appears like a past life, but you can never be entirely sure. Uh, and these are often things that you will call like a nimitta, or nimitta, yeah, like a flash or something, uh, and it may seem like a past life, but in fact it is not all that certain. Uh, but then there is the systematic recollection of a past life, which is different. Uh, and if you want to do the systematic recollection, that's what you see in the suttas, where you, uh, uh, where you go to you know some point in the past and you see here the sequence of your life. You see how you live, what kind of person you were. You see the progress of your life. You see yourself dying. Uh, you see yourself get reborn in your next life, and you can see almost like cause and effect. Uh, you see the sequence properly until you arrive in this life, and you can uh, so you can actually s see that there is a natural progression from one life to the next one uh, and that is the kind of the cert more certain that is the certain way of remembering your past lives uh, because you can actually uh, it's like following yourself in this life it's like a memory in this life yeah from when you were young to now except that it is far more powerful than a memory in this life one of the things about deep meditation it creates a mind which is incredibly clear yeah very very clear you can see exactly what is going on and for that reason you have no doubt really as to what is going on here so you the whole progress is there and when you see cause and conditions then obviously it is much more uh, sure that what you're seeing is uh, is correct past life regression does that work maybe sometimes it does i think a lot of the time it it probably doesn't work. Yeah, but all the time it seems to be it seems to give all kind of wrong information. It doesn't give any information at all. Probably it's just like a, a kind of noise that kind of coming out of the mind. And remember, the mind is uh, very creative. Uh, everything we see around us, uh, whatever people do in the world, the create you know all of this is really acts of creation. Uh, 
it is interesting what the Buddha talks about the various realms of human be- of, of being, not human beings, any kind of beings. Uh, and it says they have all been created by the mind. Yeah, it's because of the mind that we get reborn in a certain way. The mind creates, if you like, this life, the kind of body we have and the uh, environment and everything is created by the mind. The Buddha says, oh, you know, people draw all of these drawings, they do artwork or whatever, but that is nothing. That is just a tiny part of the creativity of the mind. It creates all these realms, all these various beings, uh, all these various forms. Look at the animal realm, how diverse it is. Uh, All that is really ultimately created by the mind. The mind is extraordinarily creative. uh, And because of that, it confabulates all kinds of things. And when you remember a past life, it's very hard to know, to distinguish between... uh, uh, a real past life and just uh, manufacturing of the mind. When you see a picture, even when you start to get peaceful, you see something flashing in your mind, it's very hard to know what that is. A lot of the time it is just the creation of the mind. And sometimes you hear stories even of famous teachers uh, in Thailand or whatever it is, uh, and they say, oh, there's going to be a world war down the track. There was lots of rumors about this, uh, yeah. A uh, couple of, maybe 20 years ago, I said, yeah, in 2012, you know, it's going to be war and so on and so on. It never happened. Uh, so even teachers uh, who or monks who have a lot of experience with these things, sometimes they, not so often they get it wrong because they are not real understandings uh, of a, a reality. They are just uh, uh, mental fabrications, really. Uh. But sometimes past life regressions can be right as well and really the only way to find out is you have to check out the facts yeah you have to kind of go back and see if this person that you remember yourself to be if that person is real if such a person actually existed and um, one of the stories i like which i tell all the time on these kind of occasions is a story of a fellow in perth he was a uh, one of the very is very strong supporter of our Buddha society in Perth, Buddha society of Western Australia, and he has a Catholic background. Uh, and then uh, he decided to have a past life regression. Uh, of course, as a Catholic, he didn't believe in rebirth or anything like that. Uh, but then one of the other very staunch members of Buddha society, uh, actually very, he'd been around for 30, 40 years, uh, he had taken a course in past life regression. Uh, so he was kind of inviting people to say, oh, yeah, please come. Yeah, and they would pay a certain fee or whatever, and he would regress them. And so he went to this man, and uh, he said, I'm interested in kind of regressing my past lives. I don't believe in past life, but let's have a, you know, let's, let's try it anyway, see what happens. So, <laughs> and so he did. And he, uh, he, he and then as he was, uh, you know, in this um, state of uh, hypnosis or whatever it is that you are in you, you don't really know what's going on yourself uh, he started talking and he's talking about this experience that he had uh, yeah and he was talking about himself being a poor person in ireland maybe back in the 19th century or something uh, and then coming to australia uh, yeah immigrating immigrating from ireland uh, and immigrating into australia and then going into the army, and he described what he was wearing. I'm wearing these boots, yeah, obviously some kind of army uniform. Then after finishing off in the army, he started a farm in the southwest of uh, Western Australia. This is all his memories, yeah. And he can remember the building looked like this, and he built up this farm, yeah. And he had a wife, and he had a number of children. Uh, and then he remembered himself dying, yeah. And he remembered how proud he was, yeah, coming, uh, as this poor farmer from Ireland, building up a life of his own, making this beautiful farm, and he dying on his deathbed, he felt, wow, I really kind of, 
really made it. Yeah. Then he comes out of his uh, of this hypnosis, uh, and the regressionist tells him, "Yeah, you know, you just remembered your past life." And he said, "No way! I don't believe in past lives. <laughs> it's just just a confabulation of the mind. I don't believe any of that. It's all nonsense." Uh, and he went back home. Yeah, and he went back home, and so, of course. After a while, you kind of want you digest this information immediately. It's very hard to take if you don't believe something here. So he goes back home and gradually he digests this information. And after about three months or something, he goes back to the regression. Let's try some more. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of exciting. So let's do it again and see what happens. So he goes back, he does the same thing. And he has even more details yeah, of what happened, more about his own name even that he actually remembers. And then after the second regression, he kind of gradually, the denial is starting to fade away. So he decided, well, let me go into the Western Australian records to see if such a person actually existed. And then, of course, lo and behold, he goes into the records and he finds someone who kind of fits the description really well. Maybe not 100%, it's never really 100% these things, but it fits the description well. The name, the kind of having a farm in the southeast, immigrating from Ireland, a lot of these things kind of check out. And then he even goes down to the house that he's supposed to live, yeah, and he can't really find the house. And it turns out that where he, the spot that he remembered, that, that house had, had been demolished. So there's a lot of things that kind of seemed a reasonable match, yeah. I mean, you, you will never know for absolutely sure. But for him, it was incredibly powerful. Yeah, imagine you have been a skeptic of past life, and suddenly you remember things, and they kind of check out like that. It's a very, very powerful experience personally. The rest of us may think, yeah, yeah, whatever, maybe coincidence, or, or you know, it's very hard for us to judge. But for him, it was extraordinarily powerful. And after that, he could no longer dismiss the idea of rebirth. He had to actually, he felt, he had obliged almost to b believe in rebirth after that. But the most interesting thing of this story, and this is the thing which really kind of got me, which I thought was, wow, this is actually really powerful. In this particular life, he's a very successful entrepreneur. He has built up this company that lives off the mining of Western Australia, some kind of software company. 90% of the economy in West WA is, is mining, mining economy. And built up this company that in selling software to the money, and he was really proud. Yeah, built up this multi-million dollar business uh, and selling his software to these large companies. And yeah, I have done this. Uh, this is my hard work. And then uh, he remembered his past life, uh, and he saw in his past life that he had done exactly the same thing. Built up these things from scratch. Yeah, being very proud of what he had done. And now he realized, actually, I haven't done this of my own volition at all. I did this in this life because it was my habit to work really hard. It was my habit to build something up. This is what I enjoy. It's part of my personality. There's no free will there. I'm just doing it because of habit. And when he saw that, he kind of felt almost like a sense of aversion, a sense of, oh, I can't take it. Yeah, this is just so painful to see that all I'm doing is like I'm trapped. I'm trapped in this personality, certain habits, certain ways of doing things. And I'm just replaying a pattern from the past, doing the same thing again from one life to the next one. And when you see that, instead of feeling that this is my free volition, you feel literally that you are trapped. And this is the trap of samsara, where you 
Feel like you're independent. It feel like you have a sense of self. It feel like I can do what I want with my life. But you don't actually know whether that is just conditioning or your own free will. In fact, it is almost always your conditioning. It's got nothing to do with you. It is just playing out the program that was written sometime in the past. And you can see how scary that is when you see that. Yeah, how kind of... Um, Unpleasant it is. Why is it in this life that people want to get married and have children, have a family? And I spoke to someone today at the interview. Say, oh yeah, I'd like to have a family and get married and have a children and you know, nice life. Why is that? The reason is probably you've done it in the past, and now it feels like out of your free will you want to do the same thing. But no, you're just playing out a program written in the past, and now you have the same desires because you did these things in the past. That is the most likely reason. I always like to think, why am I a Buddhist monk? Yeah, probably because of habits. Yeah, done it in the past, doing it again in this life. It so happens, I think anyway, I think, I think it is a good habit. That's what I think, yeah. Hopefully it is a good habit. <laughs> but I think it is a habit. Because I, if, when I remember some of the things that happened to me as a child, yeah, thinking about living by myself, these kind of things, which I, I mentioned before, it's like... Things that are very hard to, for me to explain. Why did I fantasize as a 12-year-old of living by myself in the forest, in a, in a hut? It's kind of weird, yeah? And uh, a few other things as well, which kind of made me think, surely I must have been a monk in the past, or a nun in the past, or whatever. Yeah? And so we are uh, trapped, yeah? And so sometimes we just need to rebel. We don't need, to, shouldn't follow our feelings too easily. Yeah? Our feelings not just feelings, our rational mind, whatever it is, all of these things are so unreliable. Uh, and we need to really check and really ask ourselves whether what we are doing is uh, uh, wise and advisable and try to sometimes rebel against our own stupid habits. Uh, so it, that is uh, kind of scary, isn't it? Uh, it's kind of, and it's very interesting when you see that. Uh, and this is, you know, when you have a past life experience, this is why these experiences can be so powerful if they turn out to be right. If they're wrong, they can be deluding. Yeah, I was Cleopatra in a past life. Yay, me. <laughs> yeah, or whatever it is. That's when it gets really deluding. Yeah, because uh, and because uh, then you kind of think, yeah, okay, oh, you know, maybe if I carry on, I'll be that in the future as well. And it probably wasn't that great to be Cleopatra in the first place. You know, <laughs> but um, so this is, uh, these are some of the things that come out. Sometimes they can be interesting. So sometimes uh, it, uh, but a lot of the times, I don't think it really is all that useful here. Anyway, is it possible for lay people to recall past lives? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Uh, through past life regression, perhaps. Is it possible through meditation? Theoretically possible. Uh, practically, is it possible? Well, it depends how you live. I live. I know some lay people who pretty much live like monastics. Uh, yeah, they live on their own. They live far away. They live in a secluded place. They have really good meditation. Do they recall their past lives? Not as far as I know, but I guess. So it really depends on how you live and what you mean. Uh, but if you live an ordinary family life, that your chances of recalling your past life, I would say are as close to zero as you probably can get. Um, it's not exactly zero. Yeah, nothing is ever exactly zero. And, and, but uh, it's probably very close because it just isn't the conducive environment for that sort of thing. Yeah. Okay, so past lives 
finished. Tick. Next one. Expected Ajahn, is it possible to attain stream entry as a layperson? Sorry if the question has been repeated many times. It is just that answers tend to vary. So you probably get another variation and there will be even more confused after this answer. You have to ask the next one who will give another variation again. And so it goes on and on and on until one day you stop asking a question and you kind of just get on with the practice. That's often what happens. <laughs> So is it possible to attend stream? Again, yeah, it really depends how you live your life as a layperson. And again, I know some lay people who live extraordinary lives, who keep the eight precepts all the time, live completely celibate life by themselves in the hut almost. They are basically monastics, except that they don't live in a monastery. That's pretty much all. And is it possible for such lay people? Yes, it is possible. Yeah, because these are people who live like that because they actually really enjoy the solitary life. Um, but uh, so, but is that the kind of layperson you are? I don't know. If maybe you are, or if you are an ordinary layperson li living a family life, again, the the uh, chances are vanishingly small uh, that you will become a stream entry. Uh, yeah, it's very very s small, unless. Uh, uh, you happen to be a person with exceptional abilities. Sometimes you get people with extraordinary abilities, uh, but usually they kind of end up leaving the family life because they just don't feel uh, attracted to it uh, anymore. Uh, so remember, the, you know, the purpose of the Buddha in laying down the monastic life is to make it uh, give you the greatest possible chance to attain deep meditation and stream entry and arahanship and recalling past lives and having super duper uh, supernormal powers uh, super duper powers no supernormal powers uh, it's almost the same uh, and all of these things that happen that is why the monastic life was laid down uh, yeah there is a reason for that uh, to give you the best possible opportunity uh, and there are great advantages with living the monastic life if you are really into the spiritual path uh, there are some great advantages uh, you live in a very conducive environment uh, if you live in the right place you will have a good teacher to support you uh, yeah you get really good support from the lay community is kind of amazing you know you this is one of the things that is so touching you sit in the monastery and then the food just comes rolling in on wheels <laughs> every day the cars come in yeah and actually it's such a beautiful thing to see that people bringing food and you know just like here now there's people from all kinds of backgrounds in our monastery in perth because we are we're not really sectarian we don't belong to one particular culture people of all kinds of background come to our monastery here and what a wonderful thing that is. And everyone brings food. Like Ajahn Brahm says, one of the miracles of the monastic life. First the lay people come, they, live, they give the food. Then they wash up the dishes afterwards, after they leave. And then on top of that, they give in donation for the privilege of washing the dishes and giving the food. <laughs> But and of course it's good, right? It's not. I'm not saying that it's, this is actually marvelous, uh, and everyone wins out with this kind of thing. Uh, it's actually a beautiful thing to 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 watch, uh, and it's this beautiful act of generosity uh, when we support each other in this way. Uh. So it sounds funny when you say it like that. People think Buddhists are maybe a bit nuts, but actually no. Uh, we all win out when we have this kind of situation. Uh. So the monastic life has many many advantages, and that's why it is. Uh, uh, that is where you will normally find the stream mentors and the noble ones, but not always. Uh, there are, of course, some exceptions in this world. Uh, 
But that's usually where you find it. But it depends. Sometimes the monastic life is li lived really badly. Uh, you may have a teacher with the wrong view. You may have a teacher with all kinds of things. And then, uh, of course, monastic life is not going to be useful. Uh, and in fact, it may even stop you in certain circumstances. Uh, so um, I don't know whether your question, wh where exactly you're coming from and what you are um, you're trying to find out, but if you are considering the monastic life, that's what you are thinking about, then uh, I would uh, suggest you to try it out. Uh, yeah, go and stay in the monastery for a while and uh, see what it feels like. Uh, and uh, you may hate it, you may never go back to a monastery again, but at least you have tried. Yeah, you've given it a shot, uh, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, see what happens. Uh, Stream entry is uh, a very profound experience. Sometimes I talk about it, you know, and it may seem very kind of simple when you talk about it. But the reason I talk about it is because it is like a benchmark. When we talk about insight, it's a very clear benchmark for insight. That is when you understand the Dhamma and then you rela can relate things to that benchmark. That's why we often use it. And in the suttas, in the same way, it's a clear point yeah, that you attain. Everyone knows where they became a stream entry. You never forget that. It's like a massive you know, change. It turns your worldview upside down. That's where I became a stream entry. You remember that for the rest of your life. It is not like, yeah, maybe I'm a stream entry, maybe I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't have much self-view, so I'm probably a stream entry. No, it's not like that. If you are a stream entry, you know, because it is a massive transformation of who you are as a person. So it is very profound, yeah, and uh, so please don't underestimate these things, and you need some very deep meditation before you can have this kind of insight, uh, this sort of depth where you are completely, utterly blissed out, sometimes for hours and hours, sometimes days on end, uh, that kind of meditation. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm sure that probably didn't answer your question properly, but anyway, I, I gave it a shot, so let's see. Let's go on to the next one here. Yeah. Dear Ajahn, according to the Sabbasava Sutta, abandoning through meditation comes after abandoning through seeing. Based on this, can we come to a conclusion that stream entry happens by listening to the Dhamma? Many thanks. Um, the Sabbasava Sutta is basically a sutta that kind of assumes at the beginning that you are a noble one. Yeah, So it kind of starts off with the idea of, of right view and the, the deep kind of right view of the stream entering. Yeah? But it doesn't really say what leads up to that. Yeah, it doesn't, it kind of, some suttas start at a certain point, but it doesn't say how you reach that point. Yeah, so how do you get to this point of knowing and seeing? So uh, uh, we, so can you, based on that, assume that it is enough to listen to the Dhamma? Not really, uh, because you need to read other suttas to understand how you get to that point. Uh, and what the suttas say, again and again, to have the yatta bhuta yanadasana, yeah, yatta bhuta yanadasana, knowledge and vision according to reality, to have that there is one condition that is always required. Uh, what is that condition? Samadhi, yeah. Samadhi is always required, and samadhi is deep meditation, yeah. It is uh, blissing out in meditation, having a supremely still mind. That is what samadhi is, and that is a required condition for all seeing things according to reality. Yeah? 
Stream entry is seeing things according to reality. So you have to have samadhi. What does samadhi mean? Well, usually in the suttas, samadhi means the jhanas. Yeah? This is the standard meaning of these terms in the suttas. Yeah? So uh, basically, it is not perhaps 100%. We can discuss this uh, till we die, whether you need jhana for stream entry or not. But uh, the suttas are kind of, you know, Basically, almost saying that you need to have a jhana state uh, to be able to become a stream entry. Pretty much, it's very close to saying that. Uh. So, um, uh, does that mean that listening to the Dhamma is sufficient? There are a few suttas called the Vimuttayatana Sutta in the Gutra 5s, I think, which talks about listening to the suttas yeah, and then becoming a stream entry as a consequence. But if you read that sutta carefully, you will see that listening to the Dhamma is only the beginning. Yeah? Yeah, you listen to the Dhamma, then what happens? You get excited. Yeah? The Dhamma. Yay, the Dhamma. You get really, really blissed out just by listening to the Dhamma because your faith and confidence is so strong. Yeah? Yeah? This is kind of the power here, what we mean by faith and confidence. And then you bliss out just by listening to the Dhamma. And because your bliss becomes so powerful, it takes you to Samadhi. And then from that Samadhi, you see things according to reality. Then you become a stream entry. That is what it means that listening to the Dhamma uh, makes you a stream entry. It doesn't mean you go straight from listening to the Dhamma to become a stream entry. Alternatively, you attain the Samadhi first. Then you come out, then you listen to the Dhamma, and then you become a stream entry. That's how, you, how it works. But the process is always the same. The standard process is always samadhi leads to yatabhutananadasana. Yeah? Stillness of the mind, the profound stillness, is what leads to the insights and the deep understandings of the Dhamma. This is what you see throughout the suttas. You have to have a fairly broad understanding of these things to be able to know what is happening there. So the answer to what you're saying is both yes and no. Yeah, You're right that you have to listen to the suttas, but you need more than that to be able to attain stream entry. Okay. Dear Arjan, thank you for your teachings. Could you elaborate a bit more on Chaitana Sutta that you mentioned in the morning about things happening spontaneously and effortlessly. Many thanks. I'm going to talk about this sutta more at the end of the retreat, but some of you are not going to be there at the end probably, so I'll talk about it anyway. And um, so the uh, that sutta, what it says, it starts off with uh, sila, with morality. yeah, And then it says that if you are a truly moral person, uh, then you don't need to wish, or you don't need to use willpower, you don't need to use any will to have, not have any remorse. If you are truly virtuous, kind-hearted, good person, it is natural that you will have no remorse. Yeah, remorse comes only if you don't do things right. Yeah, that is what it means. If you put in willpower to not have remorse, you can see why that is kind of counterproductive. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to have any remorse. Oh, grit my teeth. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah, that's not how you don't you don't you can't use willpower. Or maybe you can suppress your bad conscience a little bit, but it doesn't really work. The real lack of remorse comes through being kind. Yeah, especially when you are kind. Remember here that when we talk about sila in Buddhism, it is actually a very profound thing. It is not doing anything bad by body and speech. It is not thinking anything bad. Yeah. 
may this person die. You never think that, uh, yeah? Uh, even though sometimes we may have these idle fantasies because we get so upset sometimes our mind is out of control. Uh, but you don't really think that. You think more, wow, this person is uh, has a problem. Uh, yeah, I should have compassion for them. Uh, but not that. But you also have the positive qualities in your mind. You do act deliberately of kindness. Uh, you try to speak to people in a kind way. Uh, you try to act towards them in a kind way. And you even think about them in kind ways. Uh, so sila is much more than what we normally call morality in the English language. Morality is precisely not doing the bad stuff. But sila is more like habit. It's the development of your character. It's the whole character was in, in, involved in sila. And the more you have of these good qualities, uh, of course, you're not going to have any remorse. You're going to feel, in fact, quite, you're going to feel good about yourself. And this is what this path really is about. The kinder you are as a person, the better you feel about yourself. And it's just natural. And this is, in a sense, what is meant by sila nusati in Buddhism. The recollection of your sila is not that you sit down and think, yeah, you know, I did this, I did that. No, it is much more just the natural feeling of joy that you get because you live well. You don't have to reflect very much. You just gently kind of lean your mind in that direction and you just feel good about yourself because you know that you're living well. Yeah, so it's simple. If you have to try too hard to remember the good things that you're doing, you're going to destroy it. Yeah, it doesn't really work like that. It has to be a very gentle kind of direction of the mind. That's how it works. So you don't need to make the mind have non-remorse when you are virtuous. It just happens automatically. You have sila, you don't feel any remorse. When you don't feel any remorse, Gladness arises, pamuja. You don't force that gladness. It is a natural consequence. It's dhammata. It arises because you have no remorse. Yay, I'm living well. Wow. It's really nice to live well. It feels good. You don't get an ego out of it. Yeah, it's not ego. It's a kind of a subdued, gentle sense of happiness and joy inside of you. It just arises because you know that you live well. Yeah, I'm sure some of you, sometimes you feel that, you feel the joy inside, you feel the happiness inside, uh, simply because you know that you are doing the right thing in your life. Uh, that is what we're trying to cultivate. Uh, the more you live uh, li the life in the right way, the easier it is to access these kinds of feelings, uh, because you, you know you're living well. The joy just arises. Uh, and now we're getting onto the path of meditation. Yeah? So if the more you have built up the qualities of sila inside, you can see here how dedicated you have to be to this path. Yeah? To have this kind of virtue, this kind of sila, you really have to be committed to this practice. It has to be number one in your life. Whenever, whatever you do in your life, whenever you work, whenever you're with your family, whenever you go to the movies, no, what. Not when, maybe not when you go to the movies. I'm just being silly as usual. But whatever you do yeah, in your life, this is at the back of your mind. This is what right view is about. This is why right view matters so much. The more established that right view is, it means the more it is at the back of your mind. It means every time you open your mouth, the back view, your right view is there to inform you. Am I speaking in the right way? Am I acting in the right way? Am I thinking in the right way? Am I perceiving in the right way? This is the idea of right view, to always be there at the back of your mind. And this is why stream entry is so powerful, because when you are a stream entry, then that right view is established once and for all, and it tends to inform what you do and how you live your life. Yeah. So you have to be able to purify your conduct to this degree, you have to be extraordinarily committed. You have to really be willing to look into your faults. Yeah? Where am I going wrong? 
How can I change the way I think about the world? And as you do that, gradually comes around. And then you will start to see the progress in your meditation. Do you feel that your progress is too slow? Do you feel that you are not having enough joy? This is where you have to look. This is where the problems are. Yeah. So look there. And then you will kind of start to find the solution, uh, the reason why you're not making that progress. I don't know if I, I'm, I'm probably very slow, but it took me so long to understand some of these things, yeah? And uh, so I like to kind of repeat it ad nauseum, and I, I'm sorry about that because you probably, uh, after a while, you. Uh, but it's, this, it is, it's actually very inspiring stuff, I think, yeah? yeah? And because it gives rise to all of these wonderful things as we do that. Uh. And then as you meditate, you sit down. Now we're really on the path of meditation. I'm saying this particular Chaitanya Sutta is really about meditation practice. It's the first person point of view of meditation, the inner feeling, the psychology of meditation, right? So you feel the gladness, the pamoja. From the pamoja comes the piti. Yeah, these are all spiritual vocabulary. Piti is like the bubbling joy inside of you, like almost like energy coursing through your body. Happy energy, yeah, beautiful energy. Yeah. And then as you meditate, this calms down. And we're going to go through the Anapanasati Sutta later on, the mindfulness of breathing, which has all of these elements in great detail. It's a wonderful and marvelous sutta, and it shows you how beautiful meditation is with all of these marvelous state, one state more happy than the next one. Piti comes the pasadi, the tranquility. Yeah, the piti calms down. You start to feel like a rock in your meditation. You can't move anymore because you are so peaceful and you are kind of immersed in this beautiful happiness. And then as you build up that pasadi, the deeper pleasure comes with that pasadi, the sukha. And everything is so nice. You don't want to get up anymore. You don't want to do anything but sit there for eternity. That's what it feels like. Yeah, you want to sit there for eternity. You hear about monks looking like rocks when they sit in meditation. Unmovable. People thinking they are dead. Oh, this monk is dead. Actually, no, they're not dead. They're just completely still because the samadhi is so profound. And this is what it feels like. And each one of these steps happens not through willpower. It cannot be done na chetanaya karaniya. It is not to be done by the will. It happens dhammata. It is according to nature. If you let go, if you allow everything to go, then this process happens by itself. There's only one thing that you have to do, and that is the first factor. All of the rest happen automatically, but the first one is what you, where you have to put your emphasis, and that is on the sila. If the sila is powerful enough, all the other factors will come by themselves. Isn't that great? Yeah, don't have to do very much. Yeah, just be kind. It's difficult enough already. I often ask people, I say, oh, there's only one thing you need to remember in Buddhism, you know, be kind. Can you do that? Everybody says, yeah, I can do that. No, you can't do that. That's the problem, yeah? If you could do it, you'd be arahants already. You meditate. We can't remember one thing. That's the problem. It's hard to remember one thing because it requires that right view, always being there at the back of your mind. We need to be reminded to be kind. I need to be reminded to be kind. I'm sh I'm, please don't tell too many stories about me, Ajahn Nisarana, because it might get embarrassing for me. He has known me for a long time, yeah? And that's always embarrassing when people tell you the stories from your mother comes along, and, oh, no, not my mum of all people. She knows everything about you. Huh? And Ajahn Nisarana, he's not my mum, but you know, he's kind of almost a bit like that. Huh? <laughs> Been around for a long time. When I came to Bodhinyana Monastery first time, 
27 years ago. You were already there. Remember that? You showed me around and you kind of look after me. 27 years ago, I was a mere whippersnapper then. I mean, you were already quite mature at that, at that time. <laughs> so uh, this is how this, this works. This is the idea of this idea of things being dhammata according to nature. You sit back. You don't do anything. You put in the root causes. Everything else emerges from those root causes. Remember that. That is what matters. That is where the work is to be done. Okay, so uh, Ajahn Ramali, what is your advice for a layperson to practice the Eightfold Noble Path when he or she lives in a world that promotes, praises, competition and achievements? Uh, my advice is don't worry too much about the world. Yeah, don't listen to all of these. People have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, people are blind in the world. People think that competition and... Uh, Achievements in the world are really worthwhile, but all those, all that achievements that you get in the world, they have to be given up one day. Nobody's going to remember you. Nobody's going to, not even you, is going to remember those achievements you had. Yeah. After a couple of generations, your name will be erased from human history, never to be seen again. What's the point? What happened to those achievements? They're gone forever. Yeah. This is the long-term view. Remember the long-term view. Yeah? Forget about all that stuff. It's irrelevant. Look instead at your own inner life. That is a real achievement because that is an achievement you will carry with you in your future. If you create a happy, beautiful, bright mind in this life, that is what you take with you into your next life and also long-term into the future. And it gives you a foundation for happiness. And if you don't go, if you go further, it also gives you the foundation for stream entry, awakening, deep samadhi, all of those beautiful things on the path. Uh, that is where you should invest your time. Uh, don't, w don't worry about this world of ours. Uh, what you should compete in, you should compete in the comp competition of being the kindest possible person. Yeah. So compete in the office. Oh, may I offer you a cup of coffee? Would you like a cup of tea? I'm going to go and do this. You know, well, How can I be of assistance? Don't, over, don't do it to such a point where kind of you overdo it i mean find obviously a balance yeah but take those opportunities yeah when you have a chance to be kind and do something kind to somebody there's lots of opportunities to be kinder and uh, we always need to take those so um yeah uh, you know it, one of the strange things that i have seen are some of the most successful people uh, that i have known in my life i've known some people who have been very successful actually uh, and um they have often been really nice people, yeah, really, really good people, people with uh, very good interpersonal skills, people who don't compete, yeah, but through the sheer abilities and sheer kind of good nature, yeah, they still make progress. Sometimes the people who compete the least are the most successful because nobody fears them. If somebody's really competitive, you can, oh, too much, yeah. I'm not sure if that person really should be promoted. They're just too competitive. But someone who's really kind, who doesn't really seem to care about worldly things, uh, often they are the, sometimes, not often, sometimes they are the most successful. Huh? It really depends on the work environment and what you do, of course. Uh, but sometimes that's true. Huh? So uh, what you should do in all of these situations, put your spiritual life on top. Uh, the spiritual life should always be number one. That is in your long-term interest and also in the long-term interest of the people around you. 
The worldly things in the end of the day, they fade away. They are irrelevant. They have to go. Yeah, you can't carry them with you. They don't matter. They are really quite irrelevant in the big picture of things. But because people have no idea, among other things, of rebirth, it means that they don't really have that long-term vision. If you have an idea of rebirth, you have a very different perspective on how to invest your time and what to invest it in. Put your spiritual life first. That is what really matters. That is where you, uh, things really come together and you have a meaningful existence. So uh, don't worry about other people, what they do. You just do your own thing. If you don't get promoted, it doesn't matter. If you get fired, okay, you can become a monk or a nun. Yeah, So great. <laughs> That's, if you have that kind of attitude, you can never really fail. Uh, okay. Dear Ajahn, do all beings get enlightened in the end? <laughs> that, that's too easy, isn't it? So you don't means you don't have to come here anymore, but you get enlightened anyway. So you just can just chillax and just. Uh, <laughs> Some lay people scoff at the idea of renunciation. Mm. Dhamma, etc., in this lifetime, do they also eventually come in contact with the Dhamma even after eons? Um, do all beings get enlightened in the end? Well, the Buddha was actually answered that, asked that question. Uh, yeah, he was asked, this, this uh, fellow comes up to him and says, Oh, yeah, uh, you know, Venerable Sir, is it, is it that the case that all beings eventually get enlightened, or only half of beings, or only a third? Uh, and you know what the Buddha said? What do you think the Buddha replied? <laughs> he remained quiet. He didn't answer the question. Yeah? So we ne will never know what happens in the end because the Buddha remained quiet. Uh, wh <laughs> why? And this, but this is very interesting. Why did the Buddha remain quiet? And it, it's a very fascinating, this is an interesting question, but it's more for kind of for philosoph philosophical reasons. And I, I'm not really here to talk about philosophy. But, you know, um, for many reasons. First of all, I don't really know much about philosophy, but also because it's kind of a sidetrack. Yeah. Um, but it is a kind of inter interesting question. If samsara has existed potentially infinitely in the past, uh, yeah, if, if we take that as an assumption, maybe that is the wrong assumption, I don't know, but it would seem like it that there is no conceivable beginning. Yeah, If there's no conceivable beginning, it looks like it goes back to time immemorial. There's no, there's no starting, but that's what it looks like anyway. If that is the case, and there are Buddhas arising at regular intervals, it means that there would have to be an infinite number of Buddhas in the past. If there was an infinite number of Buddhas in the past, but there's only a finite number of beings, everyone should already be enlightened. Isn't that the case? Isn't that the kind of logical conclusion from this? I think that is a mathematically sound kind of this becomes a theorem. It's based on certain axioms, and the conclusion is that yes, uh, all beings must already be enlightened. So either you are all enlightened, or there's something wrong with this equation here. <laughs> so the answer is that there's something wrong with this, yeah, and some some assumption in this is wrong. What is the wrong assumption? Is the wrong assumption that there are more beings kind of rising all the time, coming out of, I don't know, maybe consciousness is splitting or consciousness is arising? I don't know what's happening here. It's kind of strange, yeah? But something strange is happening, something we don't really understand, something the Buddha never answered. Maybe the Buddha himself didn't have an answer to this. Maybe he, it was just too uh, hypothetical or too uninteresting or whatever. So the answer is, do all beings get enlightened in the end? 
There is no answer to that. Uh, but the problem is that if you don't get enlightened now, uh, it means that the chances that you will suffer again in the future are great. Yeah, now is the opportunity. Yeah. Now you have the chance. We still have the teachings of the Buddha in the world. Uh, the Buddha gave us all of these teachings. Uh, and if we don't take the opportunity to practice them in the right way, it is almost as almost like a lack of gratitude in a sense. Uh, yeah, we should thank the Buddha for these teachings. We should do our very best. And if you don't do that, you miss the opportunity. Where are you going to get reborn in your next life? You might get reborn as a, I don't know, kangaroo if you stay in Australia. <laughs> or maybe you get reborn in a Muslim country. Maybe you get reborn on Mars. I don't know. There are so many variables. You have no idea what's going to happen next. You had the opportunity. If you don't take it, you just don't know. If you want to maximize your opportunity to be reborn as a Buddhist in the future, well, in any case, you should be learning as much Dhamma as you can. You should be practicing as far as you can. Then you're maximizing your chance to get reborn as a, you know, and recognize the Dhamma in the future. Again, this is straight from the suttas. Uh, this, uh, this is what the Buddha actually says. You will recognize the Dhamma if you take the practice far in this life. So, uh, Please don't uh, think like that. Uh, it's a very dangerous way of thinking. It basically leads to being lazy and it basically leads to suffering in the future. That's what this kind of thinking leads to. Uh, so will they eventually they scoff at the idea of renunciation and Dhamma, etc.? It is very unwise. Yeah? These are people who don't really have an insight into their life. They don't really understand what Dhamma is about. It's about happiness. How can you scoff at happiness? How can you scoff at giving up suffering? How can you scoff at beautiful peace, powerful mental states, bright and light and beautiful? How can they scoff at things which help all the beings in this world to move forward in happiness and harmony in a positive way? It's madness to scoff at the Dhamma. You're scoffing at the greatest treasure in the world. How can you scoff at that? They don't scoff at diamonds or gold, but diamonds and gold are nothing compared to the Dhamma. They don't lead to any real happiness. This is really silly. So you should have compassion for those people because they don't know what they're talking about. They are blind. They are deluded. They don't see what is right in front of them. The most marvelous, beautiful spiritual teaching that ever existed in humanity. Okay. Last question for tonight. And uh, it is actually two questions, so not quite the last, but uh, getting there. So number one, how do you explain the behavior of monks in places like Myanmar who encourage racism, etc.? Is this because they are undeveloped in mind? <laughs> yes, probably not just undeveloped in mind, probably undeveloped in virtue as well, undeveloped in wisdom, undeveloped in body. Or maybe they have the wrong development in body. They went to the gym or something. I don't know. So they are obviously undeveloped in many ways. How do you explain that? The way you explain it is because this is human behavior. Yeah. Uh, human behavior is often stronger than the spiritual behavior. The spiritual uh, culture is often kind of the superficial surface of a country. Just because you are a Buddhist country doesn't mean that people will behave like people. They will. They have defilements. They have sense of nationalism. We are Buddhists. Yay, Buddhism is the best. You know, these Muslims, they are destroying Buddhism. We have to safeguard Buddhism. That's kind of the idea. We have to safeguard Buddhism. And the way to do that is to 
kill the Muslims. Yeah, this is kind of how they think. Yeah. But of course, it is completely wrong. You don't safeguard Buddhism by killing somebody. That's exactly how you destroy Buddhism. Because Buddhism is something to be practiced. The way to safeguard Buddhism is to practice it in the right way so you inspire others and then everyone goes forward together. If you kill people in the name of Buddhism, what you're doing is you're hastening the downfall of Buddhism. Or if Buddhism is somehow preserved, it will be a shell Buddhism, a Buddhism on the outside with no inner content. So it's crazy, but it's just people. Yeah, Monks are people, just like lay people are people. It really depends how they live their life. And very often the defilements of the mind are stronger than the kind of superficial spirituality that some people live. I don't know if you heard this story. I can't remember if I told it here last time I was here, but this was a, a very famous monk in in Burma, one of, maybe the most famous monk in Burma. And this is kind of troubling yeah, when this happens with the most famous monks around because they are, have a lot of authority in a country like Burma or in any country really where you are kind of the top of the pyramid, so to speak. Yeah. And he gave a talk to the military in Burma. This was at the time when the, uh, uh, you know, when the problems with the Rohingyas in Burma was going on at the at the strongest. There was most clash between the Burmese or the Myanmarese, whatever you call them, and the Rohingyas. So he gained, went get, went to give a talk to the military here. And you would have thought the right thing to say to the military would have been, okay, be careful, be gentle, don't use excessive force, yeah? Do what you have to do to, you know, keep law and order or whatever. But remember, these are also people. They will suffer just like we do if you treat them in a bad way. So do whatever you have to do, but be as gentle as you possibly can. That would have been the right way of dealing with this as a monk to reduce the damage that the military does. But what this monk did instead, and this says something about the Buddhist teachings, and this is why it is interesting in a sense, what he did instead, he he pulled out an ancient story. Yeah, This is the only way that a monk could possibly justify violence. He pulled out a history book, and many of you will know this history book. This is the Mahavangsa. Yeah, it's the very famous history book of the uh, of Sri Lanka, how Buddhism came to Sri Lanka and how it developed in the Sri Lanka, etc. And in the Mahavangsa, there is a very famous story. I'm going to make it short because um, it's not very it's not very inspiring at all, but it says something about Buddhism. Uh, in this Mahavangsa, there's a story of one of the ancient kings. And he was fighting. This was a Sinhala king. He was fighting with the Tamils. Yeah, 2,000 years ago or something, or 2,000 whatever years ago, a long time ago. The problems in Sri Lanka have been going for a long time. Yeah. And so he was fighting with the Tamils, and because they were fighting with each other, and he was probably defending Buddhism, just like they're doing in Myanmar now, it's already been going on for 2,000 years, and then he killed lots and lots of Tamils, thousands of Tamils, according to this story, apparently. Afterwards, he felt really bad, as he would do if he killed thousands of people, you can imagine. So he gets these monks to come to his palace, and he asks the monks, well, I've killed all of these people, what should I do? And some of you may know this story. And then the monks, they say to the king, well, actually, you didn't really kill anyone. Because all of these people, they don't keep the five precepts. They haven't gone for refuge. They don't count as human beings. There was only one person who kept the five precepts, apparently. And that person, because they were Tamil, they count as half a human being. So of all of those thousands, you only killed half a human being. Yeah? It's a terrible story. And it's kind of a... 
is a dark kind of spot, yeah, in the kind of the um, in the sangha. How can a monk say such a thing? Yeah? I don't know if it ever happened or, or if it's just a story, but even the fact that it is written down is terrible. Yeah? And now this monk in Burma, this is the story that he tells the soldiers. Uh, yeah, you can imagine the effect on that. Uh, yeah, the idea is oh, he doesn't say it outright, but the underlying idea is that well, these Rohingyas—they're probably not real human beings. That's kind of the underlying idea. Very destructive when it comes from someone with such authority. Yeah. But what is beautiful about this, the good part about this, is that the only way to justify violence in Buddhism is to use stories like that that are not really Buddhist texts. This is not the word of the Buddha. Yeah, this has got nothing to do with the word of Buddha whatsoever. It is a history book, and that is the only way you can justify violence in Buddhism, because the actual suttas, the word of the Buddha, has such massive integrity. It is impossible to justify anything wrong, really, from the suttas, the early word of the Buddha. So that is the beautiful thing about these suttas. There's this enormous integrity about them. Every sutta you read points in the same direction, towards kindness, towards compassion, towards non-violence, uh, towards doing the right thing, even towards kind speech. Uh, treat your people well in all ways. That is really the conclusion from that. Uh, and you really have to go out of your way to find any kind of justification for violence. Uh, so this is how it happens, yeah? Just to give you some idea. And that's how, when there is power involved and there is uh, whatever involved, uh, then this is what happens. Uh, how do you explain the ongoing antagonism towards nuns having full ordination in places like Thailand? <laughs> um, uh, in Thailand, it is a very varied. You know, it depends who you ask. I, I mean, it's not as if there is a kind of full antagonism in Thailand. Yes, the, the Sangha hierarchy is against it, but uh, hierarchies are always ultra-conservative. Why? Because they want to preserve power. They don't want to rock the boat. You are on top of the society. Why do you want to? You want to be conservative because you want to keep things the way they are. You will have noticed that it's always like that in society. The people who are the most wealthy and the people who have the most power tend to be the most conservative because they want to conserve things as they are. It only makes sense. Whereas those people who feel a bit oppressed tends to be, tend to be more less conservative because they want to change things. That is how things tend to be, just by kind of just by default in a sense. So, uh, but that is what happens in the hierarchies. But if you ask a lot of ordinary monks or lay people. Um, nuns are, bhikkhunis are actually highly accepted in Thailand, yeah, and they are actually supported. I know a few Thai bhikkhunis, uh, and uh, they get a lot of support, yeah, and they are, there's a bhikkhuni monastery in Chiang Mai in the north of Thailand, which is very well supported, has a lot of support from Bangkok, and when you go, they have these magnificent buildings and everything, yeah, so really, really well supported. Certainly makes it possible to live as a bhikkhuni over there, so it depends who you ask, yeah. And I went to visit uh, Ajahn Ganha uh, some time ago. I, I asked him about the, the bhikkhunis. Uh, and uh, he is, you know, really a beautiful monk. Yeah, really exceptional. Uh, and he says, yeah, well, in Thailand we have to do things the Thai way. In Australia you have to do things the Australian way. So it's up to you to do whatever you want to do in Australia. Uh, that's the enlightened way of speaking. Yeah, we do things. We don't kind of try to control what's happening in other countries. Uh, 
So he was uh, in, in Thailand, okay, because we've done things this way, he was perhaps not kind of going to start a revolution in Thailand, but he certainly wasn't so conservative that he was trying to stop it overseas either. Yeah. But there's a lot of support in Thailand. And what I think what needs to happen very often is that when there's a lot of support from the ground up, yeah, the grassroots support, uh, then eventually the institutions at the top will, all, will also change. Uh, when the Bhikkhu Nisanga is building up, uh, there are lots of bikinis in Thailand. When all the lay people support the bikinis, yeah, which they do when 90% of the monks support bikinis, then eventually the hierarchy itself will think, wait a minute, it's a fait accompli, it's already done. The bhikkhu sangha is here, might as well change the law. Yeah? So they change the law and then it, maybe it happens. Often it is like that. You don't change these things from the top down because the tops are always conservative. Often it happens bottoms, bottom up instead. Yeah? So I don't, I wouldn't worry so much about what's happening. Yeah, you just live your life. Things, things go on. Bikinis flourish here and there. And then eventually things kind of fall into place. Okay, everyone, that's it for tonight. So again, please have a nice rest. And we'll see you back again tomorrow morning. Let's just pay homage to the Triple gem. What do you normally do at this point? Yes. Just do, do you do any chanting or do you just uh, bow? Just bow. Yeah. But it's not. It's not really uh, Sri Lankan, is it? Do they know? Yeah. They know it. Okay. Okay. Let's do the Arahang Samma Sambuddha. It's a nice, nice thing to do. Yeah. Arahang Sama Sambudo Bhagava Bodhang Bhagavantang Abhivadene Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Supati Pano Bhagavato Savakasango Sangang Namah